let me invite you this morning, let's make our way in our Bible to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter number 1. 1 Timothy chapter number 1, and we're going to be looking at verse number 17 today. Verse number 17. You say, well, that was in last week's message, just barely, just barely. You know, I came back to the text and I realized, you know what, I did not give that the exposition that it is worthy of uh, in verse 17. It is a doxology of praise to God uh, that cannot be overlooked or skimmed over. I know that for time's sake, I didn't have time to expound it last week as we looked at the passage before it, uh, considering the grace of God and how Paul has experienced that and how God's grace reached down to save him and it has reached down to save us in Christ Jesus. And, and uh, Paul concludes that testimony with a doxology. He, he opens it up in thankfulness. And if you look at the beginning of that passage, back in verse number 12, he says, I thank him. But he concludes it in praise, and that's how we ought to. We have to thank the Lord, but also praise the Lord for his goodness and grace upon us. And so the title of the message is Honor and Glory to the King. Honor and Glory to the King. And I pray to magnify the King here this morning. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17, Paul says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever." And ever, amen. When we consider the great grace by which we are saved, what should that provoke in us? It should provoke us to adore, honor, and praise the God who has bestowed such grace to such sinners as us. And this is indeed what Paul does here in our text. Paul is overwhelmed by the grace of God upon him. And like, rightly so, you consider, consider the depth of Paul's rebellion, his depravity, his sinfulness, his rejection of Christ. He viciously persecuted the church of God. He hated the message of Jesus Christ. He, he uh, wanted to erase the church from the face of the earth if he could until Christ in his grace Struck him down off his high horse on the road to Damas road of Damascus. Struck him down. Opened his eyes to the truth, making him willing to believe the truth of the Messiah. And all of this flows from Paul's testimony in the previous passage and culminates here to this particular doxology in verse number 17. So Paul here gives us a short but rather deep revelation of the God who saved him. And you'll notice that Paul says here, he describes him as the only God. And that is important, especially considering the polytheism of Ephesus, where Timothy was pastoring. What is polytheism? It is the belief in multiple gods, that there are many gods. But Paul shows us plainly there's only one God. But I want to recall for a moment as we open in this text what happened during Paul's journey in missionary service there. There was a man in Ephesus named Demetrius who was gravely concerned about the message Paul was preaching. He was a silversmith who made shrines and idols to the goddess Artemis. This was his livelihood. And so the message of the one true God, the one and only Savior... That would put him out of business. That would affect his livelihood, right? 
And so listen to the concern there in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You can turn there with me if you'd like, but I want to just give you a little backdrop here to where Paul is writing this to and why this doxology is important for this. In Acts chapter number 19 and verse 23 through verse 27 for a moment, this is in the midst of this. The Bible says, And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. But you can't guess what the way is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is about Christianity. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, he's got a big business. It's not little. He's got a big business in this. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, The gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. This led to an uproar in Ephesus in which a great crowd, thousands, gathered and they chanted for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This false god was vital to them, to their life, to their culture. So much so that they invested much in the temple of Artemis. You read a little bit about that temple. We learn that the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long and 220 feet broad with 127 columns of white marble, each 60 feet high. It took nearly two centuries to build all of it. To them, their goddess seemed immortal. But how wrong they were. Where is Artemis today? With the exception of a few scattered columns on the plain near ancient Ephesus, the last fragments of her tem temple and a handful of coins and a few broken columns, they're on display in the British Museum in London as a testimony that she is not a god at all. Why do I give this information? Because it is greatly relevant to the context of Paul's doxology here and where Timothy is ministering. Because there is only one God who is true who is immortal, who is to be honored, to be praised. This one God alone bestowed saving grace on Paul and changed him dramatic, dramatically. This one God bestowed saving grace on you who believe today. This one God is the only God who can bestow saving grace on any sinner in this room if they are in need of that. So I want us to see some truths today from this one verse Notice with me number two. Don't get too excited. You notice that there's two points instead of one. I mean, instead of three. Two points instead of three. Well, it's just because these two points are a little bit longer. It'd make up for the third point. It's not there. Say, okay, so just hang on with me. Notice with me number one. I want you to see the description of the king. And this is all just fundamental right out of this verse. The description of this king. Notice firstly that 
I want to point out that he is, this God, the king, he is the authority. He is the authority. He is the one who has sovereign power and rule. And this is all wrapped up just in the fact that God here rescribes himself through Paul. In verse 17, he says, now to the what? King. Now to the King. Now, you understand this one verse can easily be glanced over, but sometimes it is of great worth to pause and dissect the Scriptures and pull out the spiritual gold nuggets that are there. There is so much to be uncovered in this. Now, you'll notice that he says the, the definitive nature in this statement that there is a king who alone is the king. He's not one king among many, but he is the king. The king, the one. Now, there are many different earthly kings in this world, men who have risen to great earthly power and prestige. There's only one true king who rules over all. So what does this mean? And he, he is the true God. What does this mean that God is the king? Who is, a, who is a king and what does a king do? A king is the highest person of authority in a land and rules over it with his power and with his sovereignty. Thus, God here is the king, the sovereign ruler. But what or whom does this sovereign ruler and king rule over? Here's the answer. Everything and everyone. God doesn't have a limit to his jurisdiction to which he has authority over. Everything and everyone is subject to this king. There is nothing and no one outside of the scope of his sovereign rule. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He's not limited in that. Who does Paul have in mind here as this king? Well, we know it's God. We know that Jesus is the king, obviously. Many scriptures make plain concerning his messianic position right now. But the scriptures also ascribe kingship to the whole of the triune God, especially God the Father. And I believe that's primarily the case here, God overall. Paul recalls the many texts of the Old Testament that speak in this fashion. Psalm 47, 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with songs. God said through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Church, understand this. God is king. God is king. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus is the reigning king right now and forever. He is the exalted Messiah. He is the one that was prophesied of through the lineage of David and would rule over his people and over the world. I'm not negating that in any way. Understand this. But understand that his kingship is not separated from the Father's kingship or the authority of the Holy Spirit of God either. In other words, what I'm saying is that they together are in perfect harmony as they rule over all things. There's no rivalry between them for prestige or power or preference like there is among men 
They're in perfect unity in everything that happens. Brothers often demonstrate this tension of wanting to one-up another, right? Yesterday, Spurgeon came up to David, pulled up his foot and just yanked his sock off and ran away. One, I was pretty fascinated that he could pull David's leg up while he was standing and yank his sock off. I'm like, go get him. But that led to an all-out chase through the house, battling each other. And all over the high, valuable sock that was on David's foot. Mankind likes to try to one-up each other. They try to have power over the other. But there is no competition between the persons of the Trinity. You remember what Jesus said in his ministry that prompted his hearers to stone him. John 10 and verse 30, he said, I and my Father are what? One. They're not two, they're one. And so the triune God, understand, is the almighty sovereign who reigns over all things in heaven and on earth. And as the sovereign king, he alone has the right to do whatever he wants. He has the right power and authority to conquer whom he wills. And I want you to understand that every person is going to be conquered by this sovereign king in one way or another. You're either going to be conquered by his grace unto conversion or you'll be conquered by his justice unto destruction. It's one or the other. There's no one that escapes the conquering king. You see, God the king has governed all of redemptive history. And he will do so to the very end. And so in one of Paul's, this is one of, in one of Paul's marvelous doxologies, he lays this out plainly, showing his sovereignty in working in this way. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, and watch this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. This ties to salvation because Paul, in this doxology, he is praising God for His sovereign grace that has been bestowed upon Him. For were it not for the sovereign grace of God, Paul would have continued in his rebellion against the Almighty only to be brought to justice for his sins in the end. And that is a warning for each of us here. You will not get away with your sin. You're accountable to a sovereign king. And Paul submits to the kingship of God in his life. And that brings an important point to us. The kingship of God brings us to the application that we all must recognize his kingship and submit to that kingship. Do you today recognize him as the true king, as he really is? Have you submitted to him in faith? Do you continue to submit to him in the life that you claim as a Christian? We've probably all heard, seen this bumper sticker. I've seen it a lot out there. It says, God is my co-pilot. If there's anything that makes me want to rear end somebody, it's a bumper sticker like that. God is my co-pilot. Now, I would never do that, by all means. But man, that just gets my fire theologically burning. What's wrong with that statement? What's wrong with that statement? It makes you the pilot and God your passenger. 
Now understand, many Christians only want that kind of relationship with God. But anyone who puts God second in command is headed for a terrible trouble. Because God's not second in demand. He's always the first. Do you submit to the king in all aspects of your life? Is he king over your soul? Is he king over your moral behavior? Is he king over your family life, your work life, your private life, your public life? In all aspects of life, Christian, you are to recognize the kingship of God and submit to his authority and his will. And this is what Paul recognizes. He points out that he is the authority. We're not the authority. He is. Submit to the king. Notice letter B this morning, and you could probably fill these in as we go along without my help. You could have created this outline, church. It's comforting. He is eternal. He is eternal. This king is eternal. Notice the description of God here, it deepens the further Paul goes. With every word he pens, it just it deepens the majesty and glory of God. In verse 17, notice, he says, Now to the king, and there's this little description about this king, of the ages. The king of the ages. Why does Paul describe God as the king of the ages? Well, some translations render this Greek word as the king eternal. In fact, the Greek word for of the ages right there is the same word in this verse translated as forever and ever. Two Greek words translated in this text to describe God. What's this mean? This means that the sovereign reign of God as king is an eternal reign. God does not have a beginning, and God does not have an ending. Can you wrap your mind around that? Nope, and you're not meant to. What's he say to his people? Isaiah 48, 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. Listen to this. I am the first. And I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth. What does the scripture say of Jesus in the New Testament? Go to Revelation. Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That points to the eternal nature of God. And so you understand that that God, He is king before time. He is king in time. He's king beyond time. There's never a time in which God is not king. What other king can compare to such a king as God? See, every king in human history was not born reigning. They had to rise to the authority of what it is to be an earthly king. And every king in earthly history has lost that authority as king, either by being pushed out, voted out, or the grave. One way or another, no king remains king forever in this world. It happened to the pharaohs of Egypt, the Caesars of Rome, the emperors of China, It will happen to every president and prime minister who is presently in power. But God is the king of the ages. The kingship of God is not up for change. It's not up for replacement. It's not up for vote. 
You know, we have a presidential vote coming up this year, and I'm already sick of hearing about politics. Anybody else with me? Two sides want authority and leadership, but only one's going to actually get it, and that is determined, we suppose, by the vote of the people. The two sides have no power of themselves to grant themselves authority. They depend on something else. But you understand, when it comes to the kingship of God, he's not voted on, it's not up for debate. He simply is king and cannot be stripped of that. Why cannot he be stripped of his kingship? Because his kingship is eternal as he is eternal. Moses wrote beautifully of God in Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the great I am. The self-existent, self-sufficient one. And because he is the eternal God, he eternally reigns with all power and authority. Psalm 93, 1 and 2, the psalmist wrote beautifully, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. And since the throne of God is everlasting, that means all of creation and history and redemption come to pass according to the reign of this king. Redemption, understand this, was not a backup plan when Adam fell into sin. Redemption was plan A. Before the creation of the world, he planned our redemption. Redemption was plan A. You know what that means? His grace always hits the bullseye. Never misses the mark. It was aimed at Paul, and it hit Paul. Believer, it was aimed at you, and if you're born again, it hits you. And he will continue to save sinners because that is what he has chosen to do. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes later to Timothy about God's saving work. And notice the language used here. He says of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. Before the ages began, this was given. And so you notice that this is, this is the work of God. And this is a comforting and assuring truth to us today. Stephen Charnock rightly comments here and says, God is of eternal duration. The eternity of God is the foundation of the stability of the covenant, the great comfort of the Christian. You understand that our salvation, it is rested and secured in the hands of an eternal sovereign who is merciful and gracious, has accomplished salvation for us. Paul here was comforted by this covenant of grace that reached down to him. And shouldn't you be too today, Christian? It's not up to you to keep yourself saved. Your your, Your salvation is held in the hand that does not let his people go. That brings us to number, I better wake up with the letter C, 
If you follow my outline right. Letter C, not only do we see that God is king, he is the authority, not only do we see that he is eternal, we also see that he is immortal. He is immortal. He says in verse C, now to the king, immortal. What does Paul mean by the word immortal? Doesn't that just refer to the same thing as being eternal? Well, not really. Brings about another wonderful attribute of God, actually. The word immortal here means impervious to corruption and death. It means that it is impossible for God to be affected by sin and thereby decay or corrode or to change in any way. He cannot be corrupted. He is perfectly sustained forever in his perfect essence. Now, this is unlike humanity and creation itself. Man and creation are mortal, meaning we are corrupted and we decay because of that corruption. You'll notice the other word used for immortal in describing God is when Paul was speaking of those who had been given over to their lust as they followed their wicked desires. He says of them in Romans 1, 22 and 23, that they were claiming to be wise. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the point of that foolishness. They're rejecting the immortal God who does not change and is perfect to worship created beings that are mortal and are corroding and decaying and corrupted. In fact, you look at everything in creation and see everything in this world is changeable and is corrupted. Animals die and decay. Trees and plants burn up and are torn down. The earth erodes and changes with the weather. Here's one we'll probably all identify with. Our own bodies are wearing down, aren't they? Our own bodies are wearing down and changing. We're not improving to greater vigor and youthfulness. We get older. We decay. We are corrupted. They're running down. Decaying to the grave, despite man's best efforts to make himself immortal. And by all means, scientists are trying. They're doing everything in their power to reverse what sin has brought, but they'll never be successful at such. Now, you may improve the length in which you live. You can eat healthy and take care of yourself and all that, but you're not going to escape the natural order that is the decay of human life. And not only decay of human life, everything. Appliances stop working. I mean, you, you ever buy a brand new refrigerator and it just stops working? Why can't, why can't you buy something that just lasts forever? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I know it's true that they don't make things like they used to. A lot of older made things, they do last longer than these newer ones. We've had a fridge, you know, for about four years. Ice maker starts, you know, tinkling and not working. And, you know, it's that with everything. Your car breaks down. You're going to have to replace the brakes. You're going to have things that happen. You've got to change the oil. Clothing wears out. The list goes on and on and on. We live in a mortal, changing, corroding world due to sin. How could we ever think that there's anything in this world that could give us hope or salvation? It's an absurd idea. 
Paul is pointing out that God alone is immortal, incorruptible, and unchanging. God said through the prophet Malachi, he says, For I, the Lord, change not, Malachi 3.6. You see, the perfection of his holy essence is impenetrable to corruption. It is impossible for God in his essence to be touched by sin and death, even in the work of Christ, understand, even in the work of Christ, though he took on the body, a body, for the purpose of dying for sinners through his innocent life, even his body in death did not experience corruption. Psalm 16.10 tells us this. Prophecy about him, about Christ. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter tied this together when preaching in Israel later, years later after the resurrection of Christ. He says in Acts 2.24 that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ is risen from the dead, Christian. He overcame that which no one could overcome. And so the beauty and glory of this truth about God being immortal is that Him being immortal has given His people immortality in Jesus Christ alone. Those who were once doomed in their mortality are given immortality, eternal life in Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. Those in Christ, we're still affected by sin and we die. Yes, but it is only temporarily. It is not our final end. You see, for the Christian, they will one day, like Jesus, be risen from the dead and be given a body that is immortal and in corruptible, that will be eternal. And I want you to read this with me. 1 Corinthians 15. Go over there with me to behold this text and tie it together of how the immortality of God weaves into the gospel and its application to those who believe on him. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 50 through verse 57 for a moment. Paul, through this chapter, has described the beauty and glory of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people. And as you look at verse 50, he look at this. This I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on what, church? Immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57 summarizes it all. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, you are already on victory ground. Rejoice in this, and it is because God is immortal. For no mortal God could grant you immortality. There's only one God that grants that, and it's the God of the Bible. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise His name, as Paul does here. Letter D, notice with me that God is, you want to guess that next point? Invisible. Right there in the text. This king is invisible. Notice this. Now to the king invisible. And we understand that God in his bare essence is not seen by the eye of man. Jesus said of God in John 4.24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, that which is spirit is not visible. It is invisible. And this is a good thing that God is invisible. Why? Because no man can bear the unveiled sight of God in his holy, bare essence. God says repeatedly, in the Old Testament especially, no man can see me and live. You say, well, what about Moses? He beheld God. He only beheld a portion of God. Veiled. You cannot see my face, God said to him. That would be his bare essence. Paul will later say of the king in this letter of God, in 1 Timothy 6, 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You see, the most that anyone has ever seen of this is this glorious light within which God himself remains hidden, the outward refulgence of his inner majesty, one commentator said. Scripture makes it plain that we cannot look upon Him. And the fact that God is invisible is often the subject of contention, particularly to the skeptic and the scoffer. Many say today, well, if God is real, He should just show Himself to me, and then I'll believe. They really don't have a clue what they're even asking. There's a couple of things wrong with that thinking, though. Firstly, is that though the essence of God is invisible, the evidence of God is observable. You say, how so? Creation itself is a testament of the glory and majesty and even the attributes of God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Watch this. For His invisible, key word, His invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been vaguely perceived, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How are they clearly perceived? In the things that have been made. And because God in his his invisible attributes are clearly perceived in creation itself, what's that bring upon mankind? They are without excuse. See, the painting gives insight into the painter. But secondly, regarding this idea, 
is that God has revealed his invisible self in the visible person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in flesh, manifesting God to humanity. You remember the exchange between Philip and Christ about this very subject. We read in John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. In other words, Jesus, we want to see God. We want to see him. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? And listen to what Jesus says. Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is God in flesh. Paul says of Jesus in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So you understand that, that the only way to truly know and see God is through Christ Jesus. Just because God is invisible in His bare essence does not mean that He is unknowable. He is a knowable God and He has made Himself known to us in His creation and in His Word. He can only be known and seen in Jesus because of His redemptive work accomplished for believers. Charles Spurgeon rightly comments here and says, I cannot endure the sight of God until I see Him in Christ. And God cannot bear the sight of me until he sees me in Christ. Christ is the middle piece. He's the mediator between God and man. The invisibility of God, understand, is probably an overlooked attribute that we ought to rejoice in. It is not to be scoffed and scorned, for it is essential to the nature of God and his working in history. As one commentator said this about it, and I put it in your notes because I thought it was good. The fact that God cannot be seen shows us that there are aspects of His divine being which are not subject to our scrutiny. God is without limits and without boundaries. He cannot be probed and dissected. We must accept that there are some divine mysteries with the human mind which the human mind cannot penetrate. God is beyond what the mind can comprehend. And Paul praises God here for His invisibility. And so should we. But lastly, in letter E in this subject, He is the only God. We pointed this out at the beginning. He's the only God. Paul says this in verse 17, the only God. Now you say, oh, yeah, we know that preacher. But how significant is this one truth? We know there's only one God, but the world around us doesn't know there's one God. Maybe there's some in here today that aren't sure about how many gods there are. Let me testify to you today, there is one God. Not many, there is only one. How significant this simple truth is. You see, the culture in the Ephesians was saturated with multiple gods that people worshipped and, and, and served. And guess what, church? Our own culture saturated with that. It's polytheistic. Multiple gods are acknowledged and worshipped and praised among us. But Paul makes it unmistakably clear that there is only one God, and this God is the God revealed here in Scripture. See, God even has to remind His people often in the Scripture that He's 
monotheistic in nature. He says to his people Israel in Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This little statement is pretty important at the end. There is no other. There is no other. He says through Isaiah, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And there it is again. And there is no other. Paul the Apostle writes to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, key word is so-called, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all thing, are all things and through whom we exist. You understand today that if there is one God, then you need to know this one God. He's your creator and you're accountable to this one God. What does this one and only God mean for us today? It means that every other God out there that man worships is a false, dead, empty God. Contrived in the imagination and mind of man. For the true God cannot be invented by men, but rather he must be revealed to men. The true God is a God who reveals himself. And so he must, if man is ever to know him. And what a mercy it is today, church, that God has revealed himself to us in his word. Paul, in this one verse, has given us such depth to the description of our God of grace who saved him and saves us. Which brings us to number two, and lastly, I won't be long here, I promise. I want you to see the adoration of the king. We see the description, but now we see the adoration. It's really what's wrapped up in the title. And I want you to see two quick things about this, is that honor and glory are his alone. Because of who he is. He's the only God. He is the immortal, the eternal king, the invisible. The one and only God. Glory and honor are to be to him alone. What is honor? To give honor is to give God his due. It is to show him the respect and reverence his kingship deserves. It's to give him his worth. Which is what worship truly means. Worth-ship. When we worship, we're giving him his worth. Why do we gather here every Lord's Day? Because he's worthy of our worship. Our honor. What is glory? Sharing some notes with you. Glory refers to the radiant and luminous manifestation of God's majestic being. To give glory to God or to give God the glory is to simply testify that He is glorious. You see, Paul is consumed with the glorious God who saved him. Who God is and what He has done for him has changed his life forever. He is consumed in praise. Because of the glorious grace that transformed his heart and his life. 
As Calvin rightly comments, it says, This sublime praise of the grace which God has bestowed on him swallows up the remembrance of his former life. For how great and deep is the glory of God. You know, God has saved many wretched sinners who have lived terribly, like Paul himself here. But when you come to know Jesus, you understand all that past don't matter. It's washed in the blood of Jesus. You're consumed with the grace of God and who he is because he has changed your life. And so we give him honor and glory because he's worthy of it. Worthy are you, O Lord, and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4.11. But we also give him glory because that is the entire purpose for which we exist. He created all things, accomplishes all things, and brings all things to its expected end that he has decreed for his Glory. Go read Romans 11, 33 through 36, and you'll see another wonderful, beautiful doxology communicating this very truth. But not only are honor and glory his alone, that's the key word, honor and glory are his also forever. Do we give honor and glory to God once or twice and then be done? <laughs> no, what's Paul say here? In verse 17, he says, to him be glory and honor how long? Forever. And ever, amen. Amen. There will never be an ending to the praise and adoration we will give our king. You say, when we get to heaven, are we going to get tired of that? Nope. You're not gonna, I mean, I understand you come to church, you be in church all day, you get physically and mentally tired. You're probably tired right now thinking, man, I wish this preacher would wrap it up. I'm hungry. You're not going to wear down in heaven. You have that immortal body. You'll never get tired of praising his name. Bowing before him. Glorying in him. And it is all because of his grace that you're in that presence. Charles Spurgeon rightly says this. And take note of this. A seat in heaven shall one day be mine. But a chain in hell would have been mine. If grace had not changed me do you understand that Paul is absolutely amazed that such a God as he describes here such a king as this would stoop down to save someone like him I'm right along with him I never persecuted the church but I know how great a sinner I am we all do Christian you know your flesh you know what God has rescued you from. And that is all by His grace. I think it's interesting to note that Jonathan Edwards, he recalls this text and this account as the account of his conversion. As he read these words, he had a sense of the glory of the divine being and prayed to God that I might enjoy Him. And friend, you'll never be saved until you see God for who He truly is. If he's just some religious figure, those Christians go to church and worship, you'll not be saved. You have to see him for who he truly is. Because when you see him for who he truly is, you're going to see yourself for who you really are. A sinner worthy of his justice and wrath. In need of Christ alone. The Savior who died for sinners and rose from the dead. 
so that those who repent and believe in him have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. If that's you today, I pray that you would come to know Christ. If you already know Christ, glory as Paul does here in this text. Praise his name for his grace and his goodness to you.